Welcome to Making Coffee, a behind-the-scenes look at what goes into making one of the world's favorite beverages. I'm your host, Lucia Solis, a former winemaker turned coffee processing specialist. Thanks for joining this week's episode. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 52. It's the first episode of the new year, and it's a bit of a long one. As usual, I will caution you that the information we talk about builds a lot on information from previous episodes. So if this is your first time listening to the podcast, well, you must be quite the coffee nerd to jump in the deep end and click on this title. But hang on tight, and if you fall off, just know that there are 51 other episodes of foundational information to support you. All right, let's dive in. As many of you know, if you join Patreon, you get access to digital office hours with me a few times a month. We have great conversations, and it's a space where producers from many different countries can interact. I want to share with you a comment from Bini from India that he made on one of our he made on one of our recording sessions, and it's something that I've been thinking for a while, and I just haven't been able to get it out of my head. So let's listen to Bini. I've got uh, the last last year or the last harvest. There are a couple of. Um new farmers that I was working with and we did these things and I said it is very close to how a carbonic message but without using the tanks and I got calls from a couple of big roasters saying that you know you cannot call it carbonic maceration because you're not using those tanks and uh, they were like you know you should you should try not to use that term and uh, yeah, I mean, kind of, sort of threatening. You know, you should not use that name. Then those coffees, they scored well. They got sold to a lot of roasters. And it was, yeah, I mean, it's kind of weird because, you know, when, when they invest in those tanks, they do not want smaller growers or smaller farmers to use the same term uh, without using those expensive tanks. If this isn't your first episode and you've been with me for a while, you've probably heard me mention that I don't like carbonic maceration. But it has nothing to do with the flavor. I'm not against the flavor produced by the method. I'm just generally annoyed with its popularity. I think its origins are misunderstood or poorly understood. And I think it's another case of coffee borrowing from wine without considering the usefulness of the application, and that it seems like a lot of circus for flavors that can be obtained in easier methods. I also don't like the method because it's labor-intensive, I think it needlessly increases processing time, it can decrease cup uniformity, and is difficult to scale. I don't like to talk about it much because I don't want to give it attention. But what I have recently realized is that I have been approaching carbonic maceration like a right-wing conservative nut who thinks abstinence is an effective method of birth control. I've been trying to teach carbonic maceration abstinence, and it's just not helpful. You horny coffee nerds are carbonic maceration curious, and preaching abstinence is just not working. So today, we are talking about how to practice safe carbonic maceration. And for the purposes of this episode, I'm just going to shorten it to CM. So anytime I say CM, I am referring to carbonic maceration. So in my opinion, one of the safest ways to practice safe CM is with Brogusta instead of Arabica. In specialty coffee, I think Robusta is like the red-headed stepchild of the coffee family. For you non-Americans listening, a red-headed stepchild is a terrible American saying that describes a person who is neglected or mistreated. I can still find many bags that boast that they are 100% Arabica, as in, it's a feature that they contain no percent Robusta. 
Robusta was, and in many cases, is still thought of as a lower quality coffee species, and therefore excluding it from a coffee blend is worth bragging about on coffee labels. But as is so often the case, with some time and education, what we once proudly bragged about eventually makes us cringe with embarrassment. I predict with the changing climate and difficult growing conditions, we will soon be bragging about how much Robusta is in our blend, and we will even see it as a starring role on coffee menus. Maybe the labels will brag about 0% Arabica in their Robusta blends. You know, a girl can dream. You might not think this applies to you because you only drink or buy Arabica coffee, or if you only grow Arabica, but I think Robusta will become exceedingly more relevant to most of us who grow and drink coffee. I'm predicting the next coffee trend will be Robusta-based. I recently read two different papers with very different methods for improving Robusta coffee. I found them both interesting for different reasons. Both of these papers are available for download in Patreon. But as usual on this podcast, I read and share the research so you don't have to. For those keeping track, Canephora is a species name and its synonym is Robusta. You will often see these two terms interchangeably. Canephora is the botanic name, and Robusta came more as a nickname to describe its hardy nature. This coffee species is able to grow in lower altitudes and diverse climates around the world, making it a more resilient and robust species of coffee. Robusta coffee plants are also relatively resistant to pests, insects, and harsh weather conditions. Vietnam is the biggest exporter, producing 42% of the world's Robusta. This accounts for 31 million bags, about 1.8 million tons of coffee. Brazil accounts for 24%. In Brazil, Robusta is known as Conilon. Indonesia, India, Uganda, Malaysia, Tanzania, and Thailand are also significant players in the Robusta market. For those of us with only a vague familiarity with Robusta, let's quickly review. Although more than 100 coffee species have been identified, Coffea arabica and Coffea canephora account for 62 and 37% of all coffee produced globally. That was a statistic cited in the first paper from 2019. The second paper from 2022 says that canephora production is up to 40%. And you have to marvel at that. That means that there are 98 other species of coffee that are unknown to us consumers. First, you must marvel at the possibilities. So many coffee varieties, so many flavor possibilities. But marvel quickly turns to concern when you realize the other side of the coin. All that potential means that the reality is we have put all our flavor eggs in the Arabica basket. This lack of genetic diversity is also concerning. Two species account for 99% of the world's coffee. And with all the climate pressures facing coffee farmers, we are rather behind on solutions. This is not an episode about climate change or lack of genetic diversity, which are both super important topics that I am unqualified to talk about. But I just want you coffee lovers to be aware of the corner we have painted ourselves into and the few options we currently have. This makes Robusta more important because it's easier to improve what we already have. Research and development into new coffee species is important too, and it is slowly happening, but changing how we process Robusta can happen immediately, right now, in all of our farms. So the first paper we will talk about is called Modifying Robusta Coffee Aroma by Green Bean Chemical Pretreatment. This was published in the journal Food Chemistry, volume 272, in January of 2019. It's a bit of a boring title, but it has some really interesting chemistry. The background of the study is that the researchers were looking to minimize the differences between Robusta flavor and Arabica flavor. 
Let me quote how they describe the flavor. They say, Arabica is considered to have a smooth, mild, and rich flavor, while Robusta possesses a flatter flavor, lacking in taste with a muddy odor. Oh dear, this would make very few people interested in drinking Robusta. The authors continue, quote, But Robusta coffee is less expensive and it is often blended with Arabica coffee beans to reduce costs and enhance crema formation in espresso. However, the maximum level that can be included is often limited due to the loss of aroma quality. End quote. So the researchers talk about the economic importance of blends, how often these two species are blended together, and since Robusta is cheaper, if you can add more Robusta to a blend without lowering the quality of the blend, you can make the blend cheaper. Robusta can be up to half the price of Arabica. And in this study, they were able to modify the Robusta flavor and aroma so much that they were able to go from an 80% Arabica, 20% Robusta blend to completely flipping that to an 80% Robusta, 20% Arabica blend without people noticing, without their taste panel saying that there was any more Robusta in their blend. What I want you guys to keep in mind is that the researchers are not necessarily trying to improve Robusta, but rather what they're trying to do is make Robusta so much like Arabica that we can trick you into not noticing how much Robusta you might be drinking. It's kind of like when you have a cookie recipe that calls for molasses, but you don't have molasses, but instead of abandoning your task, you see what else you can use. And looking through your cupboard, you see that, wait, we have some maple syrup. So you use that instead dessert is saved. These researchers want us to believe that they were able to modify Robusta coffee so much that they could have a 20% Robusta blend and an 80% Robusta blend and that the drinkers couldn't tell the difference between the samples. For listeners of this podcast, this is remarkable. Many listeners of this podcast can taste the difference not just between Arabicas, but between a Bourbon from Colombia and one from Mexico. To say that these researchers designed an experiment that made Robusta taste like Arabica is like a magazine claiming that if you follow their diet, you can lose 10 pounds in two days and finally get that bikini body. However, this is not a cheap tabloid. This is the Journal of Food Chemistry, Volume 272, and the researchers back up their claims with both chemical testing by gas chromatography, mass spectroscopy, GCMS, and sensory evaluation with 84 participants to back up their claim. We will come back to how they prove this later in the episode. So the researchers used green Robusta seeds from Vietnam and green Arabica seeds from Kenya. So yes, they are saying they modified the Vietnamese Robusta so much, people still thought they were drinking a Kenyan coffee. I mean, this is truly sensational. But okay, we're going to believe them for a while and let's move on. Both coffees were a washed process, meaning they were pulped, the cascara was removed, they underwent some type of microbial fermentation to remove the mucilage, uh, but that's about all we know. The paper doesn't tell us the length of the fermentation or the temperature or really anything else about how these coffees were processed or dried. They just tell us that they are washed, <laughs> quote unquote, which is terribly unhelpful, but honestly, it's more information than most research like this usually provides. However, what they lack in background information, they make up for in a simple and sweet experimental setup. One of the biggest complaints of Robusta is that it lacks the sweetness of Arabica. And as you savvy listeners know, we can't just get more sugar into the coffee seed. The sugar in the mucilage does not migrate into the seed in a natural or honey process. Sugar doesn't even migrate into the seed when soaked in various super sweet sodas, as Christopher Ferran showed us in his clever home experiment. 
You can't make green coffee sweeter by simply soaking it in liquid sugar. But as we've also covered in the sugar episodes of this podcast, you don't need sugar to make coffee taste more sweet. That is how the yeast in our fermentation help us improve sweetness while eliminating sugar. A yeast will consume sugar, so in a yeast fermentation, you're always running out of sugar, just like in a moving car, you're always running out of gas. But a wonderful byproduct is that yeast produce polysaccharides, glycerol, and fruity esters. So while the yeast is depleting sugar, it's creating fruity aromas like pineapple and apricot, and the glycerol and polysaccharides give us a heavy mouthfeel. So if you drink something that is thick and heavy, like honey, and has the aroma of peaches and mango, then your brain fills in the information that it's sweet. Knowing that we can't use sugar for sweetness, and that it's not even necessary for Arabica, we have two key levers to pull to make Robusta appear more sweet. One is body, and the other is fruity esters. Robusta generally doesn't have a problem with a heavy body, so the researchers focused on the fruity part. They didn't need a yeast fermentation to produce these compounds, and they also don't have access to the cherries. They only have dried green coffee seeds in their lab. So they tackled the fruity element. They soaked the Robusta seeds in solutions with different concentrations of acetic acid, 1%, 2 2%, 3%, 4%, up to 5% for only two hours. Just two hours. You guys, two. <laughs> so they made Vietnamese Robusta taste like the Kenya with just two hours of work. This is sounding more and more like a sensational tabloid piece. But wait till we get to the chemistry. Hold on, Lucia, you might be asking. If you told us that sugar doesn't go into the seed, how do we know that acetic acid can get into the seed? That's a very good question. And one thing we'll keep in mind is that the molar mass of sucrose is 324 grams per mole. It's a large molecule. Even glucose is 120 grams per mole, while acetic acid is 60 grams per mole. It's a much smaller molecule. But is this just about size? Well, no, not entirely. We also care about the polarity of molecules. Even if something is really small, it might not get into the pores of coffee if the charges of the molecule are opposite. It's like trying to get the wrong sides of two magnets to stick together. So it's quite complicated and it's still very early days to know exactly what gets into the seed and what doesn't, but we are starting to get some clues. So liquid acetic acid is hydrophilic, meaning it's a polar protic solvent, similar to ethanol and water. We know water easily moves in and out of the coffee seed, so liquid acetic acid has a very good chance of also moving into and out of the seed. We know sugar doesn't get in, but we do know that caffeine can come out, like in the decaffeination process. We know there is an exchange between the liquid and the green coffee seed. We know some things come out, like glucose and caffeine, and we know some things like acetic acid can go in because we can also measure them, like they did in this study. They used GCMS to find the chemical signal of the acetic acid in the coffee to make sure that it actually got in. Because a two-hour soak is a remarkably short amount of time. Remember, they are claiming they can get Robusta to taste like Arabica in two hours. And here, producers are doing 100 or 500 hour fermentations and soaks to get much less significant differences. I point this out to remind you that long fermentation times are not needed to make a big impact on coffee. And if you do see a long amount of hours on a coffee label, I don't know that you necessarily should be impressed, but if you want to be impressed, I think you can be impressed because it takes a lot of skill not to ruin a coffee when it's unnecessarily prolonged for such a long time. 
No coffee needs to be processed for so long. I think you can get dramatic gains in short times like this paper shows us. Like, no one needs to jump out of airplanes to have a good time, but some people like it. Some people like the adrenaline of the brush of the constant fear of death, and that's what they need to feel alive. So, you know, no judgment, but just saying, unnecessary. And from a flavor and microbiology point of view, I think fermentations longer than 100 hours are unnecessary and long just to be long. I think it's a very boring way to try to differentiate coffee. But enough about me. Back to the researchers who soaked the coffee for a mere two hours in different concentrations of acetic acid, and then they placed them in a desiccator to get the moisture back down to 11.5% and roast and cup and all the rest. As many of you know, Acetic acid is a key player in natural-slash-dry processed coffees. Acetic acid bacteria are obligate aerobes, so they dominate in the natural-dry processed coffees and provide that fruity character in low concentrations, but in higher concentrations, that sweet fruit aroma, that sweet fruit kind of element can flip to rotten fruit, overripe fruit, and then eventually turns to vinegar. So it's all about kind of being on a spectrum. So I think this is what makes it really tough is that you're kind of trying to catch this moving target. And for some people, what comes across as fruity and vibrant and sweet to the next person in the exact same amount is just rotten fruit, is just vinegar. So that's also kind of an individual threshold problem. Hmm, is it possible that the researchers picked acetic acid to add to a wash process to try to approximate the sweetness of a natural processed coffee? Or said another way, were they trying to mimic a natural process with a washed coffee? If they were, this would be truly very elegant. Because you can process a washed coffee in 24 hours and then soak it in 2 hours with acetic acid instead of waiting 24 days for the natural coffee to dry on raised beds. This is working smarter, not harder. This is better living through chemistry. You can skip 23 days of labor, which is also a big economic savings for producers. And you can even skip the bacteria by soaking directly in the final byproduct of fermentation, acetic acid. Acetic acid is significantly cheaper than inoculating with bacteria. As a former winemaker, adding acetic acid on purpose is the last thing you would want to do. This is one of those things that doesn't cross the wine-to-coffee recommendation. Winemakers never want acetic acid in their wine, not even 0.01 grams per liter. Um, it's, it's absolutely considered a defect. When we talk about acetic acid in coffee, we are usually talking about acetobacter, a bacteria that is an obligate aerobe, which is why it's found in the honey and natural processed coffees, right, the ones that are exposed to the most amount of air. But yeast can make acetic acid too, which is another reason we can do a washed anaerobic style fermentation and still get similar characteristics of a natural processed coffee. When a winemaker is choosing a yeast strain, they usually want to select one that produces low levels of acetic acid. But even yeast strains that are low acetic acid producers can produce acetic acid in stressful conditions. So keeping our yeast healthy and happy during the long wine fermentations is important. Winemakers are constantly testing the wine samples to make sure the levels of acetic acid or volatile acidity are low and, very important, unchanging. If you see acetic acid levels climbing, it could be an indicator that the fermentation is stressed and you're about to have a problem, 
or if it's after the fermentation during the long 12 to 18 months of barrel aging, it could also indicate that the conditions are not anaerobic enough and that there is sloppy work in the cellar because too much oxygen is getting into the wine and allowing the acetic acid bacteria to grow and produce more acetic acid. So acetic acid is not only unpleasant to taste in your wine, but it's also an indicator of bad fermentation or bad winery work. It's one of the signs of a bad winemaker, a scarlet letter on our chests. So acetic acid can ruin a wine, and yet, when I was an undergrad at UC Davis, one of my early lab jobs was to purposely ruin wine by adding acetic acid. I was working as a research assistant in Dr. Matthew Augustine's lab. His research focused on NMR, nuclear magnetic resonance. My job was to purposely spike perfectly good wine samples with different levels of acetic acid and put them in a large magnet and measure the chemical signals in each sample and then correlate them back to the amount of vinegar I was adding in the samples. I would spike the wine by adding 0.1 or 1 gram of liter of acetic acid and then put the sample in the magnet. The fact that I was working in this lab for wine was a complete coincidence because at the time I still thought I was going to be a chemist or maybe a biochemist. Wine was not on my radar at all. My history with wine was to purposely ruin perfectly good wine. That's all I did for months. Just ruin wine, put it in a magnet. Ruin more wine, put it in a magnet. And then my grad student Dan Sobieski would do all of the difficult math of correlating that frequency to the level of acetic acid added. My job was really boring, just ruining wine samples and putting them in the magnet, and then Dan got to do all of the interesting math work. But our experimental setup is almost exactly like these researchers with the Robusta samples. They were spiking green coffee with acetic acid and measuring with GCMS to make them taste better. And I was spiking wine samples with acetic acid and measuring with NMR to make them taste worse. For those not familiar with NMR, it's similar to when you go to the doctor and they put you in a large white tube to get an image of your enzymes. MRI is an application on NMR. While NMR uses radiation frequencies to generate information, MRI generates information based on radiation intensity. In NMR spectroscopy, the goal is to determine the chemical structure of matter, whereas MRI imaging, the goal is to generate detailed images of the body. MRI looks inside your body without having to open you up, and NMR was being able to look inside a wine bottle without having to open it up. And you're probably asking, but why? It makes sense to not have to open a human body if you want to look inside, but why a wine bottle? Just open it. Wine bottles are meant for drinking. Bodies are not meant for, you know, opening. And you're right. I'm not one for saving bottles for special occasions. Drink your wines. Most don't last as long as people think. Unrelated but important PSA. Just open that special bottle already. You know, the one that you got for your birthday or some other gift and that you keep stored above the refrigerator for who knows how many years. First of all, how dare you? And second, it's probably turned anyway, so just drink it already. Anyway, the goal of this research from the Augustine lab at UC Davis was to be able to know if a wine bottle is spoiled without having to open it. This application was for old and expensive wine bottles, for like restaurants and auction houses. Imagine spending $1,000 on a bottle of wine only to open it and find out that it's turned to vinegar. This technology could allow verification that the wine was not full of vinegar without having to open the bottle. Auction houses could use this technology to guarantee the integrity of really expensive bottles. And a smaller application would be for like a high-end restaurant serving high-end bottles. As a consumer, it's not your fault if you get served a bottle that is defective. 
So in the previous scenario, you, the customer who ordered the $1,000 bottle, would not have to pay the $1,000 because the restaurant would cover the cost or it would be the restaurant's responsibility to ask the winery for a refund for this defective bottle. So the restaurant could benefit from saving any, you know, saving themselves the unnecessary losses of buying bottles that they know are bad and aren't going to serve to customers. Or imagine you have your eye on a 1947 Chateau Cheval Blanc and you're going to drop $300,000 on it. You want to be sure that it's a good bottle of wine. <laughs> I know, it's a ridiculous example. Wine people really are ridiculous. But out of curiosity, I just googled a list of the most expensive wines sold, instead of just making something up like that previous example. And while old bottles like the 1987 bottle of Chateau Margaux said to be owned by Thomas Jefferson, is definitely on the list, I was surprised to read that the top three most expensive wine bottles are actually newer vintages, one from 2000, one from 2017, and another one from 2019. I'll spare you the details, but these newer vintages are commanding prices in the millions. One million dollars for a 750 milliliter bottle of Chateau Petrus because it spent a year in space. This is so silly. And coffee loves to borrow from wine. So unfortunately, I predict we will soon see high coffee prices for coffee that was sent into space. Okay, back to me ruining wine by adding acetic acid and jamming it in a large magnet. When I had to present the research findings at the end of the year, we titled the talk Fruit of the Vine or Pickle Juice. Now that's a snappy title, more memorable than modifying Robusta coffee aroma by green bean chemical pretreatment. I mean, it's almost like the researchers don't want us to read their work. Anyway, as a former wine person, acetic acid was the enemy. We were always vigilant to keep levels as low as possible. Even though I left winemaking in 2014, reading this paper where they were purposely introducing acetic acid into coffee still makes me feel a little uneasy. Okay, so let's go back to this question. We know acetic acid contributes to the fruity element of dry or natural processed coffees, and these were washed coffees. So did the researchers just want the washed coffees to taste like naturals? While this is a really elegant way to transcend the process, this is not what the group was after. Remember, they are not microbiologists, they are chemists. They weren't trying to mimic dry processed fruity esters and get a sweeter taste. They were trying to change the internal pH of the seed to shift the kind of chemical reactions that occur in roasting. Usually in this podcast, we talk more about microbiology, microbe metabolisms, and, you know, generally life, things that are alive. But this paper is pure physical chemistry, which was actually my first love. I remember being 14 years old in Paul Bent's chemistry class, watching him go over covalent bonds and drawing Lewis bases and thinking, this, this is what I'm meant to do. I truly loved chemistry since that first day in class. Anyway, lots of twists and turns later. Turns out what I was meant to do was live on a remote coffee farm in Colombia and sometimes podcast about chemistry. Life is full of surprises. Okay. So the goal of the research was to shift the pH of the seed and influence new roasting reactions. The researchers in the paper identified 24 aroma compounds, which I won't repeat all 24 of them here, but there is one that I would like us to focus on. The descriptor green, which actually shows up four times from four different aroma compounds. The first is hexanol, which has an N-aldehyde functional group, and the flavor description is grassy and green. 
Also on the list is 1-methylpyrrole, which has the odor descriptor of green, beanie, smoky, and tar. Then we have 4-methylthiazole. The functional group is sulfur-containing, and the descriptor is green, but like tomato and more fruity and nutty. And then the fourth one is 2,3-dimethylpyrazine. The functional group is a pyrazine, and the odor description is green and nutty. I focus on green because it's usually what most coffee producers want to minimize. Green has memories of unripe coffee, of coffee that is too fresh, or underdeveloped, or undeveloped. I wanted to pick out these four examples of green to show that it can be a difficult thing to tackle and doesn't always have to do with ripeness levels, but it could also be the genetics of each variety or perhaps some processing method. I also mention green because while green is not a particularly prized flavor descriptor in coffee, it is also generally avoided in winemaking, but there are two exceptions. I worked in Napa Valley at Opus 1, which makes a Bordeaux blend of the five traditional varieties, Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc, Malbec, Petit Verdot, and Merlot. Every year, the blend contained a different proportion of all five, depending on yields of each variety. Sometimes the Merlot would have a tougher time and we would have less, but the Malbec enjoyed the hotter days and we had more Malbec a certain year. So the number of planted vines didn't change, but based on weather and some vineyard practices, we could have significantly different crop yields of the different varieties. But the blend of these five different varieties also depended on the style the winemaking team came up with. Even though the percentage of varieties was different, and the growing years were very different, there was still a certain house style that fans of Opus 1 expected. I think of it like a fashion house. The French brand Chanel has a lot of different clothing and bags, and different fabrics and colors and shapes. But when you see a Chanel suit or a Chanel bag, you know it's Chanel. That's how we were with Opus 1. Every vintage was unique, but they still resembled each other. There was a strong brand recognition that survived year to year to year. So the Opus harvest was between late September and early November. By the new year, all the wine was fermented and we had somewhere between 60 and 100 day lots, individual wines that we needed to combine to make a single wine. My job was to prepare the potential blends for the winemaking team. One blend we always had on the table was the kitchen sink. This was a blend of everything produced that year. At Opus, I learned that what you take out is almost more important than what you leave in. Like Michelangelo carving David. He's reported to have said, The sculpture is already complete within the marble block before I start my work. It is already there. I just have to chisel away the superfluous material. So he didn't look at the marble and create David. He looked at the marble and eliminated everything that wasn't David. That was our approach to the blend. The kitchen sink is a block of marble, 100% of all the wine. And then we had to carve away the bits and pieces that aren't David, the bits and pieces that aren't typical Opus 1 flavor profile. I would make blends in my lab that were 2 milliliters of a particular lot of Cabernet Franc, but that in reality represented 500 gallons of wine in the cellar. I would meticulously pipette 5 milliliters of this and 1 milliliter of that and 20 milliliters of this other thing to create options that would eventually be mixed at full scale in the cellar. All the wines were kept separate at the beginning until we chose that final blend based on tasting, like a lot, like (laughs) months, weeks and weeks of tasting, and then they would be blended in real life in the massive tanks. I've gone on quite the tangent about winemaking. I think this new year has me feeling a bit nostalgic for my former life. 
Um, But the only reason I brought this up was to talk about the flavor descriptor green. (laughs) Even though the blend was five different varieties, the one that always dominated was Cabernet Sauvignon. And an important characteristic of Cabernet Sauvignon is a green bell pepper aroma or flavor. Now, we usually don't like green vegetal wines, but if you order a Cabernet Sauvignon and it doesn't have that classic bell pepper, well, then you might not feel like you're drinking the right wine. Another example is Sauvignon Blanc. There is a green, grassy quality to it that is typical of the style. A little bit more from Sauvignon Blanc from New Zealand than the ones grown in California, but it's a common, expected, and valued attribute. So let's keep in mind that green bell pepper and green grass in wines are classic, and in coffee, the green component is one that we want to get rid of. And I don't want you to try to remember chemical names. I just want you to know that green aroma or flavor can come from many different chemical compounds with different functional groups, meaning with sulfur or nitrogen bases. And this is important to the chemistry that's coming up. Many coffee drinkers often describe black coffee as acidic. However, roasted coffee always has less acidity than the unroasted green seeds. The pH of roasted coffee is higher. Remember, higher pH is less acid. By roasting, we can reduce the acidity of the green coffee because the organic acids, like chlorogenic acid and citric acid, are degraded and transformed. So by changing the internal seed pH, you can change the rate of chemical reactions. Lower pH means a greater hydrogen ion concentration, so more hydrogen ions, more opportunities to react. So you can think of hydrogen ions like a currency. It's like showing up at the mall with more money in your pocket. You don't necessarily need to spend it, maybe there's nothing you like, but having more hydrogens is just like having more money, more spending potential. We know pH drives all kinds of important reactions. We are so used to connecting pH with acidity, but in chemistry you want to think of pH as the potential of hydrogen. Hydrogen is a stand-in for protons and this positive charge, the ability of it to combine with other molecules or to resist combining, is what drives all kinds of important reactions. So okay. Roasted coffee of any kind has a lower pH than when it's in its green form. The key difference between Robusta and Arabica is that Arabica can have up to twice the sugar concentration. Another key difference is that Robusta green coffee has less acid than Arabica. So said another way, green Robusta seeds have a higher pH than Arabica green seeds, a lower pH and more acid. The researchers were adding acetic acid not for the fruity flavor potential and not to mimic a dry processed natural from a washed coffee, but because they wanted to lower the pH of Robusta to match Arabica. When they soaked Robusta seeds in concentrations of 2-5% acetic acid, the Robusta seeds match the regular untreated Arabica seeds. When it comes to perceived quality, Robusta is starting on first base, and Arabica was born on third base. By adjusting the pH of Robusta, by soaking it in acetic acid, it moved Robusta forward to third base too. Sports analogies are not my strong suit, but you get it, right? Arabica is Max Verstappen starting on pole, and Robusta is Lando Norris in P5. By shifting the pH of Robusta, it gets to move up the field and start that much closer to the front of the race. It levels the playing field. The introduction to the paper describes the flavor of Robusta as flatter, so by adding acid and lowering the internal pH of the seed, the researchers gave Robusta more potential hydrogen to interact and make a more dynamic roast. Let me share with you an excerpt from the paper talking about pyrazines, the green flavor compound. 
Pyrazines are one of the most important roast aromas in a large number of thermally treated foods. Pyrazines contain four carbon and two nitrogen atoms in a ring skeleton, heterocyclic nitrogen-containing compounds. Pyrazine formation in Arabica after roasting is lower than Robusta. This is due to the content of free amino acids being lower in green Arabica than Robusta. A reduction in pyrazine concentration could make the aroma profile of Robusta more similar to that of Arabica. So that was an example of the kind of juicy uh, writing that you get from these scientific papers, but we're going to break that down because it's actually incredibly fascinating. So what they're saying is that when the Robusta samples were soaked in acetic acid, the formation of pyrazines went down. Acidic conditions equal lower pH equals lower formation of pyrazines. And you might be thinking, hold on, I thought you said lower pH, more acid meant higher concentration of hydrogen, which means more money, which means more reaction potential. So why would there be less pyrazine and not more? Well, that is more complicated chemistry than is probably appropriate in a podcast, but you're all hardcore nerds, so let me try. Okay, the first step in forming a pyrazine is a condensation of a carbonyl and an amine group to yield a base. The base donates electrons to the central atom. So the carbon and nitrogen need to come together, right? The two molecules need to condense, they need to come together into a single molecule. The amine group, the, the nitrogen, is highly dependent on the pH of the sample, but the maximum rate of reaction occurs in an alkaline environment, meaning the more basic the environment is, the more it wants to react. Nitrogen is more nucleophilic at higher pH, when there are less hydrogen atoms, less protons, then the nitrogen is more nucleophilic, meaning it wants to donate its electrons. So alkaline conditions encourage the amine group to donate its electrons and form the base of the pyrazine. By changing the pH, by lowering it, by providing more protons, the nitrogen group is not as nucleophilic, it doesn't give away its electrons as freely, and therefore the pyrazine is not formed. So instead of creating more pyrazine reactions, more of that greenness, the abundance of hydrogen discourages the nitrogen to give away its electron pair and not form the base. At low pH conditions, the rate of the carbonyl amine condensation reactions would be decreased because of the relatively low reactivity of the protonated amine group. I mean, how can you not be a 14-year-old girl and fall in love with this stuff? So anyway, I think I said earlier that I was only going to focus on the green pyrazines, but there is another one I forgot that I wanted to mention, which is uh, furfural. This compound provides sweet caramel-like, but also cinnamon, almond-like aroma. Roasted Arabica beans have higher levels of furfural when compared to roasted Robusta. This is because Arabica has a higher starting sucrose content, and the furan products are markers of sugar degradation. So furfural is formed by the thermal degradation of glucose. This is another counterintuitive finding. They increase the sweet caramel-like aroma not with more sugar, but with more acid. So the acid soak worked in several ways. One was reducing the formation of the pyrazines, the green compounds, and it increased the formation of furans, which are sweet caramel-like. So the cleverness of the chemistry is very admirable, and the research is a success. By adding as little as 2% acetic acid and soaking the green Robusta seeds for two hours, the researchers were able to increase the amount of Robusta in a blend from 20% to 80%. It's so successful and fascinating, but it makes me very uncomfortable. It bothers me because one of the main challenges in the coffee industry is cheap coffee. 
The market does not properly compensate producers for the coffee they are already producing. And findings like this one with Robusta, well, I believe they have the potential to make bad conditions worse. Because they say in the introduction in the opening of the paper that their goal is to reduce the price of blends. This research describes a post-harvest process on green coffee. It allows companies to blend even more Robusta or hide Robusta in their Arabica blends so that they can be even cheaper. They found a highly successful way to make cheap coffee even cheaper. Who does this benefit? Certainly not coffee producers. And maybe you're thinking, but wait, couldn't producers do this to their own green coffee seeds? Well, technically yes, but practically no. This type of process, soaking coffee in precisely made acidic concentrations and precise timing and then redrying it to a target moisture of 11%, this type of precision work is hard to do on a traditional coffee farm and much easier to do in roasteries or where the coffee has arrived at its final destination. But the biggest problem is that this is done on green seeds, not parchment. Very few producers can mill their own coffee. That's what exporters do. Exporters manage the logistics of milling the green coffee because you don't want to remove the parchment too early. You want to wait as long as you can before shipping to preserve the coffee. The parchment is an important protective layer. So if producers could mill their own coffee and soak it, then they would store and transport naked, vulnerable coffee. This coffee then still needs to be shipped on a container long distances, and by the time it arrived at its destination, it could be severely prematurely aged, like very, very beat up. So this method would work best for domestically consumed coffees, coffees that can be roasted as close to the farm as possible. This could help producers who do not export their coffee, but we also know the best coffee prices are paid for exported coffee. So while there is potential for Robusta coffee producers to try to acidify the Robusta green seeds and try to sell them for higher prices, closer to Arabica prices, I think the more widespread application is that this empowers buyers to buy cheaper coffee and modify it themselves, rather than empower coffee producers to add value to their product and charge higher prices. Perhaps I am being too cynical, and I would love to be wrong about this, so I don't know. We'll see. Time will tell. I'm seeing more of a trend into research in the area of improving green coffee. And we've had a couple of discussions on this, uh, actually less on this podcast and mostly on the digital office hours discussions. We've talked about koji fermentations on green coffee, rehydration with soda. This was the discussion with Christopher Ferran. And now we can add acidic rehydration to green coffee. All of these methods focus on buyers being able to modify the flavor of the green coffee they buy, which I believe takes us back to the original paradigm we've been trying to change in specialty coffee. The original paradigm was that flavor development came predominantly from roasting, which is why coffee was sold as a commodity. You could buy green coffee from Honduras or Brazil, where it was cheaper because the value added was from the roaster and the marketing they provided. The coffee was a set of generic primary colors, and it was the roaster, the artist, who turned the tubes of paint into a work of art on her canvas. With the specialty movement and an emphasis on different varieties and terroir, there has been a push to move away from the view that green coffee is interchangeable, that it's special, that where it comes from matters. But with all the attention to modifying green coffee, I feel that a lot of this research is at odds with respecting the work done in producing countries by coffee producers. And the more disappointing premise of this research is that it maintains the paradigm that a successful Robusta is one that is as similar to Arabica as possible. This is a very common view. 
The best compliment that Robusta can have is usually, wow, this doesn't taste like Robusta at all. Which to me seems like a problematic starting point. It reminds me of the traditional American business model, that to be a successful female in business, you have to be as masculine as possible. Most of us know that the pathway to success includes erasing our femaleness and resembling men as much as possible. But women are not lesser versions of men, and Robusta is not a lesser version of Arabica. It's a different version, with its own value to contribute. For an industry that says we value diversity, I still find us falling into the trap of treating Robusta like a problem child that we wish would just fall in line. Instead of manipulating Robusta to be as close to Arabica as possible, another route could be to train ourselves to appreciate the Robusta as its own thing. We humans are so creative in our endeavors. Our minds and culture are very powerful things. We can train ourselves to like anything, and not just like it, but highly value it. Like caviar, the eggs of the sturgeon fish. Caviar is a very prestigious and expensive food, and it's not a universally liked flavor profile. I'm not saying Robusta is the caviar of coffee, but I'm not not saying that it doesn't have the potential. And why not? I just feel like our efforts would be better spent figuring out how to like what we already have instead of trying to make it into something different, something that it isn't. And not just because I'm lazy and prefer the path of least resistance, but because I think it would be better for coffee producers. So let's move on to something coffee producers can do in their farms to add value to the Robusta. Instead of the cold chemical way to improve Robusta, let's talk about the microbial way we can do it with processing. And for long-time listeners of the podcast, I think this will surprise you, because the answer is carbonic maceration. The method I have been negative and skeptical about for Arabica is now one that I'm recommending for Robusta? Yes. Mm, kind of. There are two reasons I want to share this next paper with you. The first is as a contrast to the first research paper. I want to show the mi microbiological methods compared to the chemical method. The producer-focused approach, the one that must be done on the farm, not one that can be done in a laboratory. And the second reason is bullying. CM is a poorly understood method that allows a lot of room for interpretation and bullying. Let's remember Binny's comment. He grossed us, saying that, you know, you cannot call it carbonic maceration because you're not using those tanks. And uh, they were like, you know, you should, you should try not to use that term. And uh, yeah, I mean, kind of sort of threatening, you know, you should not use that name. Kind of weird because, you know, when, when they invest in those tanks, they do not want smaller growers or smaller farmers to use the same term uh, without using those expensive tanks. What I'm essentially hearing from this is this, this complaint that you can't call it that because you're not using those tanks. So much about CM is a show. There is visual value in giving buyers a pretty picture. If someone convinced you to buy expensive stainless steel coffee fermentation tanks for your CM, and then you see someone else doing it in cheap plastic barrels or even cheaper plastic bags, and they're getting good results, well, you have to find a way to preserve your investment. This is how I see some coffee producers keeping each other down. This is why we are talking about this next paper titled Changes in the Chemical and Sensory Profile of Cofea Canefera Varconilone Promoted by Carbonic Maceration, published in Agronomy in September 2022. This was sent to me by a patron, Paolo in Italy. 
Paolo is not a coffee professional. He works in textiles. But he is such a coffee enthusiast that he spends his free time <laughs> looking at papers like Changes in the Chemical and Sensory Profile of Coffea Canefera Var Conilone Promoted by Carbonic Maceration. But he's Italian, and espressos and robusta are like peanut butter and jelly, so I'm not surprised an Italian brought this to my attention. As a quick refresher, CM is a well-known winemaking process that ferments intact, whole grapes in an oxygen-free medium enriched with carbon dioxide. The point is to encourage fermentation inside each fruit. Usually, we crush the grapes to liberate the juice and provide contact with the yeast that are found on the grape skins. One thing I want to remind you all is of the dramatic difference in size, uh, in seed size to fruit size in wine grapes compared to coffee cherries. Few of you have probably eaten a coffee cherry, but many have likely eaten grapes. Grapes are like large balls filled with sugar water and have a very, very small seeds. Coffee cherries are the exact opposites. They're like 90% seed and like a tiny bit, like two drops of liquid with very thick leathery skins. So our starting material, again, completely different. In cool temperatures, cool like 15 degrees Celsius, a wine CM fermentation can last 20 days. That's because there's a lot of liquid in the grapes that needs to be converted to wine. We have much less liquid in coffee fermentations, and remember, we don't even drink the liquid. We drink the roasted and crushed up seed. So we need that tiny amount of liquid to transfer its contents into the seed. So again, we don't, there's a lot less liquid, we need a lot less time. So let's talk about the setup for this research. They hand harvested 240 kilos of Cofea conifera from Espiritu Santo, Brazil. This is a great contrast to the previous study. These researchers are using fresh cherries in a producing country, not green seeds shipped to a sterile lab across the world. They use clean drinking water to wash the cherries. So it sounds to me like maybe they did a quick float to separate the best cherries from the dried ones and kind of remove any potential insect damage. And then they sealed them in plastic bags. Yes, plastic bags. I want to bring up the study because the scientists that are trying to define the parameters of this kind of fermentation are using plastic bags as fermentation vessels. They call the plastic bags experimental units for fermentation. These studies are well-funded. They have deep pockets to run these experiments, and they use expensive equipment to analyze the chemical compositions of the coffees. And yet, when it comes to the fermentation vessel, the researchers who are writing the guidelines for the best CM methods are using plastic bags for their experiments. I'm going to say it again for the people in the back. Plastic bags are legitimate vessels for carbonic maceration. For any fermentation, really, you don't need a stainless steel bioreactor to legitimize your fermentation. The tank isn't what provides the flavors and quality. It's the microbes that we can invite or inoculate into the tank. Because wine fermentations are liquid, you won't see CM wine fermentations done in bags. But I did see a reference at some point to winemakers in Australia using plastic bags. So even in winemaking, they are not so snobbish as to require a tank. I remember being a kid in Guatemala and going to get sodas after school. After you picked your soda flavor, the vendor would take the can or bottle and pour the contents into a thin plastic bag and stick a straw in it and twirl the bag closed. And then they would keep the can or bottle and hand over a bag full of soda. Even as a kid, I remember questioning this method, like so much spilled sticky liquid. But it does make sense for the vendors to keep and reuse the bottles and also to not give kids glass bottles. Anyway, plastic bags for fully liquid fermentations are kind of precarious, but they're not wrong. And semi-solid fermentations like coffee cherries, well, that's a very different story. 
coffee cherries are tough compared to delicate grape skins. So even if I had infinite money and could use tanks, due to the form and nature of tough coffee cherries, I think plastic bags are really a superior vessel. They're inexpensive, lightweight, and provide a lot of flexibility to coffee producers. Too many cherries? It's easier to buy more plastic bags than to get a new tank delivered. Okay, back to the research. In the experimental setup, they provide a diagram with drawing and measurements of the plastic bags. They look like normal flat sandwich bags, you know, the kind you keep your food leftovers in. They say the sizes are 40, 40 centimeters by 50 centimeters, so like 16, to 20, 16 by 20 inches. And then they give a third measurement, and they say it's 18 centimeters or 7 inches. This is a weird measurement. The drawing looks like flat sandwich bags, but this third measurement makes it seem more like, what, a plastic box? Like seven inches thick? Like what is, what is thick? I'm confused on this point because I'm not sure if they filled the small bags with cherries and then that's, that's the measurement that they're taking. Like the, it's seven inches thick with cherries inside of it. Or like, are they saying that the plastic itself was that thick? Are these like really, really thick plastic that they're putting these coffee cherries in? This second option of 18 centimeters or 7 inches of thick plastic sounds kind of absurd, um, especially when you look at the drawing of the experimental setup, but there is another crucial piece of information that maybe helps us understand the thick plastic element. Okay, so next, they took two additional steps. They f- so they filled the bags with cherries, and then they pulled a vacuum to remove oxygen from the bag, and they also injected the bags with carbon dioxide. The crucial elements that they were tracking, the experimental setup, were time and temperature. So to control the temperature, they kept the bags in three separate incubators that would keep the temperature constant. So these incubators look like tall refrigerators, but instead of keeping food cold, they were warming up the coffee cherries. So one was set for 18 Celsius, or 64 Fahrenheit, the other for 28 Celsius, 82 Fahrenheit, and the third for 38 Celsius, 100 Fahrenheit. Within those three temperatures, they chose five times. So they left the cherries in there for either 24 hours, 48, 72, 96, or 120 hours. Usually, I tell producers that removing oxygen and injecting with CO2 is not needed because uh, traditional fermentation produces carbon dioxide. So if you just wait and do nothing, the microbial activity of the mass will begin to produce carbon dioxide and will kind of flush the oxygen out anyway. This is why you see the bags inflate, and it's generally good to have a way to release the pressure and prevent the bags from popping. So depending on how you tie the bags, this can be kind of cumbersome, but not impossible. So the fastest way to get CO2 carbon dioxide is by injecting a vessel with CO2 gas. You can get a gas cylinder and flush your tank before filling with cherries. Um, Another common way from winemaking is to place food-grade dry ice in your fermenter with a lid and an airlock in place. As the dry ice sublimates, carbon dioxide gas is released and it fills a container. So dry ice is a crucial element in winemaking. There are companies that deliver giant containers of dry ice all harvest season long. So it seems like a difficult thing to get, but in Napa, it's super easy and common as like as as easy as buying bottled water. You just like call a guy and then he brings a big insulated container of dry ice to you. So I feel like almost everyone uses dry ice in California winemaking. 
as the grapes arrive at the winery, you toss new like carbon dioxide pellets on top to preserve the fruit until you can process it. So even though CO2 is most commonly connected to carbonic maceration, um, almost all traditional wine fermentations, like regular wine fermentations, use dry ice to keep the grape temperature very cold and avoid microbial spoilage before the grapes are inoculated in their tanks. Another thing to keep in mind is that CO2 gas is very heavy. The molecular mass is 44 grams per mole compared to air, which is 28.9 grams per mole. So even though you can't see either of these gases, if you have a container with air and you flush with CO2, the CO2 will sink and stay in the vessel. But you guys, this is also very dangerous. Since CO2's production is a natural byproduct of all wine fermentations, it's important to have good ventilation in the winery during fermentation. Some wineries uh, actually don't have good ventilation because they capture their CO2 production and then they sell it for credits to offset their carbon footprint. This is not the dangerous part. The danger comes when the fermentation is over and we need to empty the tanks and clean them. Red wine ferments with grape juice and skins and seeds, like it's all together. And when the fermentation is over, it's easy to pump the liquid out, but all those solids, called the pumice, need to be physically removed, usually by a person usually by a person entering the tank with a shovel. The tanks are vented for several hours or overnight, and fans are brought in. But workers still need to wear a CO2 monitor to make sure oxygen levels are not too low and that they don't pass out. In wine school, they warned us about trying to help someone who had passed out because it was really common for both people to be affected. Usually, if, a, if the first person passed out, the second person would panic and jump in and try to help and then pass out as well. CO2 incidents usually involves either zero or two people. A lot of wine harvest work is done by temporary workers. So despite all of the education and all of the warnings, every year you'd hear about someone who died from cleaning a tank that wasn't properly vented. So when people tell me that they're purposely adding CO2, I, you know, it just kind of like brings these alarm bells and it's like, it's not necessary and it's dangerous and it's just, yeah, not my favorite thing. So there's an active way to add CO2 with the gas cylinder or dry ice or a passive way, which is letting up, letting the fermentation kind of get, get going. And then it builds up its own CO2 like throughout its, its activity. Um, so if you are not adding CO2 to your plastic bags, don't worry, <laughs> you're still okay. I don't think, first of all, the tank is not the important element, and then I don't think the CO2 is that important either. However, you can. So if you're in a hurry and you, you know, want to get to the next step, it's okay to, you know, pull a vacuum and flush your tanks, but I don't believe it's an essential, but I don't believe it's an essential step for coffee CM fermentations. And this is where my personal opinion deviates from the traditional definition of CM for wine. It's true, CO2 plays a key role in wine carbonic macerations, but I don't think it's as critical for coffee carbonic macerations. So in wine, so carbon dioxide is absorbed by the grape, which converts from a respiratory to an anaerobic metabolism. So a complex array of processes are conducted by enzymes as an intracellular breakdown commences within the intact grapes. So that's why that's a really important element of carbonic maceration in wine is keeping the grapes whole and then to discourage the, the fermentation. So carbon dioxide discourages the yeast fermentation and encourages enzymes naturally present in the grapes to be released. And once the enzymes are released, they start to break down the sugars and 
they are these sugars are converted basically they're broken down without the help of any microorganisms so it's kind of like skipping this biological step so cm in winemaking is about avoiding microbial activity and being really gentle and maximizing the breakdown of the compounds in the grape juice and avoiding extracting harsh tannins from the seeds so Again, to me, this is not really relevant in coffee because in coffee, we barely have any juice and we want to maximize the seed flavors, not minimize or avoid seed flavors. So opposite goals. Again, this is one of the reasons why it's not my favorite coffee processing method, but we're going to keep going. Uh, Okay. Other important thing, wine grapes have really thin skins, like delicate tissue paper. So you want the CO2 to penetrate the thin tissue and to get into contact with the juice inside the grape. By contrast, coffee cherry skins are really tough, like leather. So I don't know how much CO2 can actually penetrate to get into the infinitesimally small amount of liquid inside the coffee cherry. I haven't seen any studies that show that this is actually happening. So I think this is really misunderstood about CM. That adding CO2 is about changing the fruit metabolism and not about pressurizing the vessel. I've been to many mills in Colombia where people tell me they are doing CM and they claim that the pressure from the CO2 is keeping temperatures stable and cold. They show me their like sealed plastic vessels with cherries and the cherries are cold to the touch. You know, they're much colder than ambient air temperature. Um, But they explain to me that it's because the pressure is keeping it cold. And I don't correct them because I don't even know where to begin. And most of the times I'm just there as a guest. But this seems like absolute nonsense to me. It doesn't make sense that a high pressure system equals low temperature, right? Like high pressure is lots of molecules vibrating quickly and knocking into each other. And high temperature is molecules vibrating and knocking into each other at rapid rates. So I can't wrap my brain around how high pressure makes low temperatures. And yeah, I've touched the cherries and they do feel cold. So either there is a principle of physics that I've completely forgotten or there is something else going on. Either way, this concept of creating pressure, I think, is misguided. And it's not just coffee producers. The authors in this paper add a lot of pressure to their small experimental bags. They add 20 kilogram force per square centimeter. And I'm not as familiar with this force unit, but it seemed high, like 20 kilogram force per square centimeter. I I thought that was really weird that they were pressurizing the vessel because that's not why we use CO2 in wine. And I thought they were trying to replicate wine protocols for coffee. Um, So anyway, I, I converted to PSI, pounds per square inch, which ends up being 284 PSI. Do you know how much pressure champagne has? When you pop the cork and it goes flying around the room, that's like 80-ish PSI. So like a bicycle tire is like 80 to 130 PSI. So imagine the thick tube of a bicycle tire and then imagine more than twice, like almost three times that pressure inside of a coffee bag full of cherries. So maybe when they said that the bags were 18 centimeters thick they really did use like super thick plastic bags to withstand the pressure of like three and a half champagne bottles like trying to burst on that plastic Um, but also so like again seems like a lot of pressure and I don't understand where this is coming from but that is so unrealistic for non-lab life use like I don't know this is like super confounding so I wondered if it was a typo like maybe they meant two and not 20. 
Um, and so in the paper, they reference another research using the same protocol for Arabica coffee. So I went to that paper and I looked up their protocol. And those researchers also added 20 kilogram force per square centimeter of gas into into their plastic bags. So I don't know. I'm truly baffled. It's unlikely that both papers would have a typo, but adding that much pressure is truly wild to me. My other guess, maybe, is that they wanted to add CO2 and only had like a giant industrial sized tank and like couldn't physically couldn't physically add less. Like it was just set to some like standard maximum. Like, I remember this one time I was listening to a podcast about a movie I liked and some actor was talking about some behind the scenes of, you know, filming this critical scene with a rain machine, but apparently rain machines only have one setting, which is monsoon setting. So for some reason, they can't get a rain machine to do like a light drizzle. So whenever you watch TV or movies with a a scene with where it's raining, it's usually always a torrential downpour and the actors are always completely soaking wet because the machine only has one setting. So maybe the CO2 tanks are like this too. It's way oversized for the super tiny experiments that they were doing. And maybe it's not really a key or a feature of the experiment, but a limitation of their setup. I don't know. But even if it's not a typo and they did add a lot of pressure, I don't think that's a key element in the process. In fact, in the discussions and the conclusion and the findings, they don't mention pressure having an impact at all. They don't mention it. They just sort of, you know, they talk about it in their experimental setup and then it just completely disappears from the rest of the paper because the factors that they're really looking at are time and temperature. Like pressure is not mentioned again anywhere. So instead of, you know, breaking our brains for now, I think we can all ignore it. So, for the record, if you're using plastic bags, and even if you're not using a hose or dry ice to flush your container with CO2, I still think you are doing CM. You are still performing a carbonic maceration. Because again, in winemaking, we don't want to pressurize the vessel. We just want the oxygen to be removed, and you really don't need that much CO2 to accomplish that. Okay, let's move on to their results. So they found that total score increased with fermentation temperature. They say, demonstrating as the fermentation time and temperature increased, the sensory score of the coffee improved. This is not surprising. We are used to connecting more time, longer fermentation with better results, right? We already see this in coffee processing of 200 or 400 or 500 hours. However, where I think we are getting it wrong is thinking that it's time that is improving the coffee and not remembering the experimental setup. Remember, coffee cherries have really thick leathery skins. The microbes are found on the outside of the skin and the fuel for fermentation is on the inside. If you're going to keep the cherry intact and separate the mucilage eaters from the mucilage, then you're delaying your process. So for example, they had a, the, one of their cherries was 24 hours. So their 24 hour at 18 Celsius scored 78 points. But when they increased to 38 Celsius, they got 80 points. So the same amount of hours, but 20 degrees hotter, improved the coffee by almost two points. And if you lowered the temperature back down to 28 Celsius, so 10 degrees cooler, it now took 120 hours to get that same 80 point cup score. So a producer can save themselves 100 hours of fermentation just by increasing the temperature at 10 Celsius and fermenting for 24 hours at 38 instead of 120 hours at 28 Celsius. 
For almost all the treatments, the hotter the temperature, the better the results. And the highest scoring coffee at 83 points was the combination of 120 hours and 38 Celsius. So the hottest and the longest. And let's also notice that for the extreme experimental setup, the upper limit was only 120 hours. That's why I'm not impressed when producers show me very cold sherries kept in airtight containers for 200 plus hours. I think they think that cold plus time equals great coffee, but cold plus time in this case equals mostly nothing. You're barely changing the coffee flavor. In multiple studies, the biggest factor that improves cup score is temperature. And if you can't get the temperature high enough, then you need to use your other tool, time, to make up for it. You need to ferment longer at a lower temperature to do anything at all. So if 24 hours at 38 Celsius does as well as 200 hours at 18 Celsius, why do we want to suffer the extra 176 hours? Why are we impressed by this? And what is it about temperature that gives us the best results? Well, temperature selects the microorganisms that will act in the fermentation process. Just like inoculating with yeast to control the microorganisms and control the flavor results, if you can control the temperature, meaning getting it hot and keeping it hot, then you can select for mesophilic organisms. So try to get your CM fermentations above 35 Celsius. In the beginning of the fermentation, bacteria are dominant on coffee cherries. If you keep the moisture up, meaning if you keep the moisture high, for example, by putting the cherries in a bag versus leaving them out to dry on a raised bed, then you keep encouraging bacteria to dominate the fermentation. This temperature stability is key. So keeping the temperature at you know, above 35 is key because so many coffee processing facilities are outside and therefore the temperature fluctuates a lot. So in the day it's hot and at night it gets cold. And this constant temperature swing will interrupt your fermentation. And this does not lead to good results. By contrast, in drying, we do want to interrupt the process. We do want the hot days of active drying and the cool nights of rest to allow the water in the seed to homogenize and come to the surface and get dried again the next day. So this hot and cold break is very good for quality drying. But the same hot and cold break is actually very bad for fermentation. A drastic change in temperature can open a window to allow another microbe to take over and change your fermentation and give you inconsistent results. And this kind of feature of outdoor facilities can be exacerbated with small plastic bag fermenters. Because most of the time I see these bags outside where the sun can heat them up, like sometimes they're directly in the sun. And then obviously at night when the sun isn't shining or the sun changes position, then they cool down. So they rarely have a consistent temperature. So again, there's nothing wrong with using plastic bags. Just be smart about where you place them. And if you don't have an incubator, which likely you don't, like they do in this study, um, one of the things that you can maybe do is put them in like a warm bath. So you can heat up water, maybe heat up a tub, and then put the bags in your warm water, obviously making sure that there's no holes, that you have very solid bags. Um, so you can get creative about how you maintain your warm temperature, like you know, frequently changing out or heating up that water. But this keeping it consistently warm, especially during the night, I think is one of the reasons why most people try this method and then they don't get kind of the promised results or why there's such a big discrepancy between the people that just try this method and shine because maybe where they're located, the temperature doesn't fluctuate as much. And then other places that think, well, just because I have this tank or just, just buy 
you know, getting the tank and flushing it, then they don't have to worry about anything else and their results, their cup results, their coffee is not as good as potentially uh, somebody else's. So if you're not getting the results that you are expecting from this process, take a look at your temperature and make sure that it's not fluctuating too much and that it's, you know, as warm as you can get it. So if you're going to participate in safe CM practices, I recommend that you follow the guidelines of that 35 to 38 Celsius. And then if you're doing it for the first time or you're trying to kind of refine your results, I would try one where you leave it for 24 hours and then the other one where you leave it for 120 hours. So basically trying both ends of the spectrum that the that the study uses and then cut both of those coffees and see if you can get as good results with 24 hours as with 120, which would be awesome because then you can save 100 really 100 hours, um, or potentially those 100 hours could provide you a very different cut profile, and maybe they could provide a benefit. So then at least you've proved to yourself that the 100 hours is actually providing you some benefit, and you're not just doing it for the sake of doing it, for the sake of putting you know something dramatic on the coffee label. Another very important tip for safe CM practices is that I believe it's better for Robusta than Arabica. One of the reasons I have tried to avoid CM for Arabica is the problem of fermenting in cherry and then having to pulp the coffee later. The problem of fermenting whole cherries before pulping is that you're breaking down the mucilage layer, which is good and that's the goal, like that's what you want to achieve. But then when we go to pulp the cherries, they no longer have the mucilage layer to protect and lubricate them while they're growing through the pulper. And this damages a lot of seeds. The pulper, because it's, you know, two metal plates kind of squeezing these seeds, uh, these cherries together, then this mechanism, this process can chip and crack otherwise perfectly good seeds. So damaged seeds leading to lower yields. And I've asked producers about this when I see that they they do carbonic maceration. And some say, yeah, they get more broken and chipped coffee this way, but they're not too concerned about it because they'll just, you know, sort it out later. And I'm like, okay, great. But also you're essentially creating more physical damage that is avoidable and then adding an extra step to sort it out. And you also have less coffee at the end to, to sell. And maybe it's only a 10% like loss damage of, you know, cracked coffee, but think of the economic value of that coffee. It's it's easier to have 10% more coffee to sell than it is to raise your prices 10% to cover that loss. So I think a lot of times people think, well, it's not that much. It's only, you know, this percentage, but then they're not adding it back for all of the effort that they're you know, going through with this process or like a lot of times the math from coffee producers doing these processes doesn't really add up to reflect the effort and kind of the added cost because a lot of these things kind of continue to stay hidden. So a lot of the times people think, oh, the cost is just the price of a tank um, or the price of plastic bags, but it's also the price of coffee that you're losing, the opportunity cost, the cost of labor, how much more people, how much more bodies, how much more you're kind of manipulating the, co- the coffee needing to move it from one place to another, that, like I said, all of those elements tend to get hidden in coffee and producers think, oh, this is really accessible, but they're not doing like the full accounting. Like we're not used to really valuing our time. So just something I like to keep in mind. 
So this is why I still don't recommend CM4 Arabica, because adding up the extra cost of extending the process time from, you know, 24 or 36 hours to 200 hours, like that is time potentially lost not processing more coffee because you don't have the physical space, um, plus the added cost of labor to manage the same amount of coffee over a much longer period of time, plus the loss of coffee from pulper damage, uh, and then the added cost of labor from either sorting it out later or having your yields be lower. So I don't often see a strong correlation between maybe a two or three point kind of increase in cup score and being able to charge like two or three times more for the coffee to make up all of that extra work. However, so again, that's why I don't like it for Arabica, but however, I think this is where we can practice safe CM by using it with Robusta. Because Robusta tends to have a much tougher, thicker, and stubborn mucilage layer. So 120 hours of time in cherry at high heat to break down that mucilage could actually be a very helpful step instead of one that harms the coffee. Because even after 120 hours, the mucilage is so thick that there could still be, there's often still enough lubrication to protect and avoid damaging the seeds when you run it through the pulper. So the thick mucilage layer, which is often a problem, in Robusta, especially when producers are used to dealing with Arabica, like it takes so much longer to dissolve, like it can feel really frustrating. But being able to break it down with a CM uh, process first could really improve the uniformity because evenly dissolving the mucilage layer also leads to kind of uniform and much better drying. So higher quality, even further down the line. And this process is also a better fit for Robusta because the researchers found that coffee processed this way had lower levels of caffeine and chlorogenic acids. And these two elements can make Robusta a little bit more harsh than its Arabica counterpart. So if we can use processing to kind of mellow out some of those sharp edges, it's also a win. So not only it's not necessarily um, additive, but if it's, you know, reducing some of these kind of harsh characteristics, then that's also a win. Like they're winning by reducing some of the more negative components of Robusta, some of the more harsh elements, and we're making it easier to process. And um, also there is that opportunity to add more complexity to, to the coffee. Okay, so I hope this helps guide you to practice safe CM with Robusta and be a little bit skeptical or at least not so congratulatory when you see excess of 100 hours on coffee labels. And before we wrap up this episode, I want to go back to the sensory element. Let's talk about how the researchers got those cup scores. In the CM paper, they describe their sensory protocol. They say, or they tell us, that the roasting was between 8 and 9 minutes, that the coffee was prepared in a standard cupping using 8.25 grams of coffee for 150 milliliters of water at 95 Celsius. They waited the 4 minutes for the infusion time and then broke the crust, and then waited until the coffee was at 55 Celsius to begin tasting. And they used 5 cup replicates and the panelists were all Q graders. They evaluated 11 sensory attributes. They were looking at fragrance and aroma, Flavor, aftertaste, salt slash acid, bitter slash sweet, mouthfeel, uniform cups, balance, clean cup overall, and total score. So let's contrast this protocol to the paper where they were able to get the 20% Robusta to 80% in the blend before the panelists noticed the change. So now we're going back to the chemical modification of the Robusta coffee. 
So the first difference is that they use 84 volunteers and they are students and staff from the University of Nottingham. But these are average coffee drinkers, meaning that they're not trained in sensory analysis, unlike the, the carbonic maceration study who, used, who said they used all only Q graders, so not general public. Um, so this will make a really big difference in the results. When you train a panel to be able to taste what you're asking them to taste, they're going to be much more sensitive. They're going to be able to perceive much smaller differences uh, more regularly than an untrained panel. The next significant difference is their protocol. So in contrast to the previous study, this sample, they were roasted um, for 20 minutes. <laughs> so they were roasted at 200 Celsius for 20 minutes, which is quite a long time. Um, and they, they say they were specifically looking for a dark roast. All of the samples were prepared in an eight cup French press and served at room temperature. So again, this is not standard cupping procedure. Um, the CM group started evaluation at 55 Celsius and this other group, the untrained panel was only served the coffee at room temperature. So I'm assuming, you know, 25 Celsius and they didn't have the five cup replicates. Also, something else that matters very much is the way in which you ask a question. So for the acetic acid experiment, they were not evaluating coffee for particular attributes. This was not a preference test. They didn't say that the panelists preferred one coffee over the other or that they even liked them equally. The question they asked is, can the panelists tell a difference? And to do this, they used a triangle test. Right, so whereas in the carbonic maceration study with trained Q graders, they were specifically looking at 11 different attributes. How does this coffee compare on this scale of these things that we're looking for? But the acetic acid chemical group, <laughs> that panel was not being asked those questions. They weren't really asked to evaluate the coffee and tell us how much they liked it. They, they were just being shown this coffee with a triangle test. And in a triangle test, they give you three samples and two are the same coffee and one is a different coffee. And their job is to find the different coffee. They're really not even telling you what you're looking for. They're just saying which of these is a different coffee. So keeping in mind how darkly roasted the coffee was and how it was prepared in a French press and tasted by the general public and not trained coffee panelists, well, it's much easier to see how they can achieve, you know, the sensational results of being able to switch out Arabica with Robusta with very few noticing the taste until you got up to above the 80% mark. I'm contrasting these two panels or the way that they did their sensory, not to criticize so much the, the chemist group, the acetic acid group. And I'm not trying to say that, you know, it makes the results less valid because they did it kind of in this looser way. I think that it very much fits what they were trying to achieve uh, because their question was, you know, how can we switch up these ingredients in a blend for this type of general audience that is perhaps not the very picky sector of the population. So I think that they did a really good job evaluating for their question. But the reason I bring it up, and it's just such a different way to evaluate coffee as the carbonic maceration study. So I just want to keep in mind, I think it's important to point out that, you know, for our audience, our you know, mostly Q grader audience, the results of that type of test may not be as dramatic. Like they could still work, but, you know, going from 20 to 80% you know, flipping your Robusta for Arabica and not having the taster, the tasters notice is pretty fantastical. And then when you see how they ask the question and who they were asking the question of, then you're like, okay, well, that, that makes sense. I believe you now. So it's not that it's not fantastical. It's that the way they ask the question 
you know, set us up for some very dramatic results. Um, and the other reason I bring this up is this is why I think it's really important to read the entire paper and not just the title or, you know, some people go the extra mile and read the entire abstract, which is just a paragraph summarizing, you know, some of the findings. Um, I think it's really important to at least look at the experimental setup and see how much information you can get from how they set up their experiment, kind of how they ask the question. And then you can decide for yourself how seriously you want to take the results or how much you know, it's not that, you know, you're going to believe them or not believe them, but it's going to say, how is this applicable to me? All right. That's all I have for you today. Uh, congratulations. You've made it to the end of another episode together. I hope that you see wine or coffee a little differently now and that learning about each beverage helps you appreciate both a little bit more. And I do hope that if you have a chance to try Robusta coffee at your local specialty shop, you take it. I personally recommend the Coffee Lab in Sao Paulo. I was last there many, many years ago, but I had a really nice cup of fine Robusta while I was there. Benny also mentioned that all Robusta specialty cafes are popping up in India, so that's also an option. And in the last FTC workshop, Gianmarco from Rua Specialty Coffee in Ecuador brought a washed and a CM Robusta to share with the group. And we all enjoyed them. They were really good, really interesting coffees. So perhaps uh, Ecuador might be another place that you can soon find some fine Robusta. Obviously, I think scientists need to keep working to diversify plant material. But I think we consumers should be able to meet them halfway and diversify our flavor preferences. Let's start training ourselves to appreciate the flavors already being offered to us by Robusta coffee growers. All right, I want to thank the patrons who make it possible for me to carve time out of my week to make these episodes and to have them available for free to everyone else. Uh, don't forget to hop over to patreon.com slash making coffee to support the show and let me know your thoughts. And also when you join, you can join the live discussions and our hangouts, our digital office hours, the podcast after the podcast, as I like to call it. This is where we got the excerpt from Binny, and also where we've had those conversations with Christopher Farron about other green coffee modification methods. If you enjoy listening and get value out of these episodes, please share with a friend who loves coffee or wine. And for episode updates, consider subscribing to my free and infrequent newsletter at lucia.coffee. Lucia is L-U-X-I-A. Thanks for listening, and remember, life's too short to drink bad coffee.